Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. We've talked quite a lot on TechDirt uh, about various link taxes or snippet taxes, though I will say that supporters of those bills hate to call them that, insist that they have nothing to do with taxes, uh, but I would challenge that view for a variety of reasons. <laughs> anyway, back in April, we had on the podcast law professor Michael Geist. Uh, to talk about Canada's C-18 bill, which is one of the more aggressive link taxes out there. And since we recorded that podcast, uh, Canada signed C-18 into law, and we are now experiencing the fallout from that, uh, even though the law has not yet officially gone into effect. Both Meta and Google announced that they will block links to news in Canada, and Meta has already begun implementing that. And there's all sorts of screaming and nonsense about that. Uh, and yet, these bills are still wildly popular with politicians around the globe and also with the media, who happens to make a lot of money from those bills. Uh, they don't seem to be getting nearly as much support from anyone else. Uh, almost all of the commentary that I tend to see on social media about these, about the Canadian bill in particular has been really just sort of yelling at the politicians for being so stupid in passing it, though I'm sure there are some people who, who do support the bills. Uh, here in the U.S., uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who likes to remind us that Every opportunity that her father worked for a newspaper has been pushing her Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, or JCPA, uh, for a few years now. Uh, we've spent much of that time trying to explain the problems of that bill, and yet there are still many, and certainly politicians and media, clamoring for it. Uh, here in California, where I am, there was an attempt at doing a local version of that, called the California Journalism Preservation Act, or CJPA. So one is the JCPA, one is the CJPA. Keep that straight. Uh, and that was from State Assembly member Buffy Wicks, who I would argue is responsible for more terrible internet bills than any other politician I can think of. But we'll leave that aside. Uh, we've tried to explain the problems of all of these bills and laws over and over again. Uh, and so I was really excited to see that Paul Matsko from the Cato Institute recently published an excellent paper titled A Link Tax Won't Save the Newspaper Industry. It goes into great detail about how these laws work, uh, that is, if you can, can consider them actually working, uh, and why they create a whole bunch of warped incentives and uh, problematic consequences that won't actually, as the title says, save the newspaper industry. It's really an excellent summary of all the problems with these laws, so I am happy to have Paul on the podcast today to talk about it. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. I must say that Tech Dirt's consumers are probably the most well-informed folks <laughs> out there about link taxes just because of your coverage over the last couple of years. So uh, kudos, kudos to Tech Dirt for what it's been doing. Cool. Uh, though I will say, I learned a lot from your paper. I, I've spent a lot of time talking about these laws, and I still thought, you know, I, I really, I really learned a lot. And and one of the things that I appreciate about your writing, and this goes past, you know, just the link text, is some of uh, the stuff that you've written in the past as well, is 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 
you know, I really appreciate how thorough it is and, and, and deep you go, um, into like details and, and history of things that, you know, I just never knew about. It was really, really helpful. And so, for example, you know, one of the things that you have in this paper is that you compare the whole link tax, uh, effort to, uh, something that happened in the 1970s where there was this attempt to preserve newspapers from the threat of, of television. Uh, and I have to admit, I was totally unaware of this history. I was, you know, a baby yeah. in the 1970s and I just, I just didn't, didn't know about yeah. it. So can, can you just walk us through kind of like as yeah. a starting point, like what happened in the 1970s? Yeah. So we've been through this rodeo before, right? So th- there was another time when uh, newspaper dominance was challenged by a new mass media forum that was stealing away advertising revenue and causing newspaper budgets to suffer and leading to a wave of consolidation and sale. Um, it just, it's the internet this time, but last time it was television. So when television came along uh, and was in most people's houses by the end of the 1950s, Immediately, advertisers started saying, oh, we can get an even bigger audience and uh, a more engaged audience. The the Basically, the ads were worth more because they figured they were more effective using, using their metrics. And uh, so newspapers immediately started feeling financial pressure uh, by, in the 1960s. And so they wanted a bailout, basically, and their idea for doing so. Um, now, now, this is, this is going to feel a little bit... Um, maybe counterintuitive today. Like today, people have very warm feelings towards uh, newspapers, nostalgia for the era of newspapers in the mid-20th century. But at the time, newspapers were often very dominant in local politics and uh, politically captured, partisan partisan operators. So they mm-hmm. would have their favorite political candidates. Um, and they were not quite – they were not seen with the kind of the, the, the rose-colored glasses that we look back at them today. And so the idea of direct bailouts of the of Congress passing you know, a subsidy for newspapers was politically unpalatable. That's not going to go anywhere. So you need a kind of an indirect subsidy. How do you do that? Well, the idea was they could um, combine with other local newspapers, maintain the same, uh, you know, maintain the brand, maintain the same, uh, you know, their own journalists, but all the back office personnel would be shared, um, which was a significant part of newspaper costs. And uh, now the problem with that is that's inherently anti-competitive, right? Former competitors, competing newspapers, right. trying to keep each other honest, are not going to become business partners. And if you can't see the potential problems there, you're not thinking hard enough. And so they needed an antitrust carve-out, they needed a safe harbor from antitrust law. And so they tried to get Congress to approve that plan. Again, if this sounds exactly like a link tax, you're not wrong, right? That's exactly what's <laughs> going on here, an antitrust safe harbor to allow them to cartelize and extract revenue for an indirect subsidy. Same kind of scenario. And uh, the problem with this, so Congress initially is reluctant to do so. Nixon, Richard Nixon is the president then, is also reluctant to do so. He was not a huge fan. Newspapers were putting him under pressure, right, for his Vietnam War policy. There's starting to be investigations of his kind of, you know, this is pre-Watergate, but there is interest in potential corruption and uh, campaign skullduggery on his behalf. So he's a little bit leery of this. But then the head of uh, of the Hearst Corporation, the, one of the largest newspaper conglomerates in the country, writes Nixon is like, hey, in case you don't re- recall, we were your friends in 68. You don't win in 68 without us. And if you want that friendship to continue, you should rethink being opposed to this Newspaper Preservation Act. So Nixon does. He rethinks it. And a few weeks later, he says, 
gives it the go ahead. It sails through Congress, and um, and it's it's actually kind of interesting because small newspapers were opposed to the Newspaper Preservation Act. They saw it as a giveaway to the large conglomerates, and they were mm-hmm. right. Uh, and then when the Watergate scandal happens, um, actually before the Watergate scandal in '72, uh, Nixon gets uh, of of the newspapers that that you know pick a candidate for the presidential election 93 percent of them endorse endorse, richard nixon he gets Uh, and and there's all kinds of letters it it, they were told the papers were told by you know the higher-ups by the conglomerates sorry what was the percentage again 93 percent it's which is nuts it's never (laughs) never gotten they were close to that at any other point in modern presidential history so he got his reward that that's what nixon wanted in, in exchange he got it but of course, this had negative downstream effects. When Watergate breaks, mm-hmm. it's actually papers that were opposed to the Newspaper Preservation Act. It's the smaller, local, more independent, non-conglomerated papers, which includes the Washington Post, which was not one of, part of one of the big conglomerates. It was not as large back then as it is today. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who tracked down the the, the scandal, while right. all the big newspaper conglomerates buried it. Uh, tried to ignore it and then buried it when they actually did pay attention to it. So, you know, that kind of, you know, subsidized rent seeking breeds corruption, breeds uh, favor, you know, favor gifting. It's, it's a bad idea. And so we've, we've done this before. Yeah. And you look at that example and you say, wow, maybe we shouldn't do that on an even (laughs) larger scale with the internet today. Yeah. And it was incredible because I didn't, I mean, like even the name of the bill, like it was like the newspaper preservation. Act, which <laughs> right is, there sounds just it's like the, the, the <laughs> it's just exactly what they're calling the modern one. Yeah. It's it's really, really incredible and interesting. And, and, you know, to some extent gets to this idea of like, I don't know if they're intended, but the consequent unintended or intended consequences of these kinds of bills. And so, you know, that takes us to, to the, you know, the, the, the link tax bills today and and you noted, but just to clarify for people who who don't read every article that I write on link taxes, who are these know. people? <laughs> <laughs> how, how how the CJPA? Oh no, sorry, the JCPA. I, I got confused there. Yeah. The JCPA actually works, and how it creates this exemption from antitrust for to allow news organizations to you know create a cartel and go to large internet companies that link to, to news and. Uh, demand that they bargain with them. Yeah. So the mechanism is that uh, large news aggregators, so uh, and and more than I think five hundred fifty billion dollars of revenue, uh, more than you know tens of millions of of monthly users. So only the biggest platforms like Google, Facebook, um, and uh, maybe Apple. They uh, they they're the only ones qualified under this legislation, and because they're qualified, the idea is is since they take links to news articles and share those to users, whether that's in the form of you know Google search and you search for a news topic and uh, Google News serves up a bunch of different articles about that topic, or it's um, uh, on Facebook where someone voluntarily, just a user decides to share a link to a news article and it goes viral and lots of people click on that link. Either way, that platform, by sponsoring that link, uh, the idea of the legislation is that they have taken something that's not theirs. They have mm-hmm. taken, they have stolen or parasitically taking the work from the journalists and the website. And so they owe compensation. Now, how do you get that compensation? How do you take the money from the one and give it to the other? Following the Australian example, and the first link taxes from Australia in, 2000, uh, in 2021, 
um, it creates a, a mandatory bargaining mechanism. And so the idea is uh, that all the newspapers should be able to go to Google, Facebook, et cetera, and say, look, our articles are being shared without you know, us being compensated. Give us money. If they refuse to respond to that, uh, they're, they're, they, they can be forced into an um, a arbitration scheme using a government-appointed arbiter. Uh, now, the problem here is that even the largest newspapers pale in size to Google, right? The, the, some of the largest companies in the world, even the New York Times is a pipsqueak compared to them. So right. to balance out that bargaining mechanism, uh, Klobuchar's bill basically uh, encourages them to cartelize so that newspapers rather than individually bargaining – because if they individually bargain, Google could just say, okay, fine, we're not paying you and we're not going to you know, show New York Times articles and our results. Problem solved. So, But they might be more reluctant to play hardball if it's all a whole bunch of newspapers. So uh, they're allowed to form these bargaining units uh, to increase their heft. But again, that's anti-competitive by its very nature. So you need an antitrust safe harbor. So the bill provides a multi-year antitrust safe harbor for newspapers that combine. And they can, you know, then the idea is once they bargain for some sum of money, in, the, in, in theory, the companies, Google et al., will settle rather than go to the arbiter because they, they'll figure they'll get socked for more money if they go to arbitration. Um, that, that money, uh, most of it is supposed to be spent on full-time journalists. And that's actually how the distribution of the money is, is given out. So the papers with lots of journalists receive the most and lots of full-time professional journalists receive the most. Um, so that that's the mechanism. It's bargaining, which is why the link tax phrasing is, is a little bit of a misnomer. It was based on earlier proposals where it was like right. a per use every link and you add it up and you have to pay, you know, a thousandth of a millionth of a penny per link shared. This is less literal than that. But right. it, it does act like a subsidy. So it's a government-mandated subsidy from big tech to big ink. Right. I mean, I, I remember you know, when, when the Australian one passed, um, and I was calling it a link tax, um, and I had this, I had a, an academic who, whose work I respect and, and who, who I know pretty well in Australia yell at me that it's not a tax. It's just a bargaining code because it's, all it's doing is bringing – you know, the news organizations and Google and Facebook to to the table to bargain. And my response to that is like, but bargain over what, right? Yeah. Right. The, the, the bargaining is over sending traffic to, to you. And, and, you know, this is just a fundamental thing of the way that the internet works is that I can link to you. I shouldn't have to pay to link to you and send you traffic. And in fact, if anything, it sounds backwards. You should pay me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. right. It's like I'm sending you traffic. I am helping, and 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 we yeah. know we know that the the news organizations appreciate that traffic for for two very clear reasons. Which is, if they don't want that traffic, they can block most of it. You know, through a variety of means, whether it's robots.txt to block search engines and indexing, so that they're they don't show up at all. Or they can literally set things up to reject traffic from this source. You can say, if the referrer is Google, don't send that traffic. Problem solved if, if that's the real problem. You know? yeah. And then the other thing that, that always strikes me about this is that, you know, especially the larger news organizations, all have social media 
people on staff whose job it is to get more traffic through yeah. these sites, you know, a search engine optimization, social media, uh, you know, people trying to get more links and more traffic through these sites. So clearly they value them inherently without getting paid for them. So, so why do they, why do they think that they then also have the right to get paid for it? Well, it, it's, it's a fundamental mistake. People think of the relationship being adversarial that right. the internet aggregators are taking something that's not theirs, when the reality is they're complementary services. Um, and distribution is massively valuable. Uh, yeah. Folks don't realize this, but in the pre-digital era, distribution costs were the largest single category of costs for newspapers. Not content, not journalists. It was just getting it out there, helping yeah. pay for newsstands and newsboys and paper routes. All that was hugely expensive. And now the internet has is doing that for them at a yeah. much more efficient rate. And like so, it's not just what they what's being taken from yeah. by internet aggregators. It's what internet aggregators are doing for newspapers. Yeah, for free, right? I mean, like yeah. you know, I, I remember you know I've been out in in Silicon Valley for for twenty five, twenty six years now, and somewhere probably five or ten years in, I can't remember what, and I don't even remember how this happened, but I got invited to go tour the. Uh, the Wall Street Journal's Silicon Valley plant or offices, mm. but like where they would actually print, you know, print the newspaper. And I have like somewhere, somewhere in my office, hidden somewhere, I can't remember where I put it, like the metal sheets of like the day before's front page, you know, that they would cool. use to, yeah. to print. It was really, it was cool. But it was like this old, like everything about the building screamed like, 1950s 1960s it was you know like the green linoleum floors and like everything about it was just weird but what struck me about it was beyond just like the giant like printing machines that again were ancient they had all these trucks like the distribution of the newspaper was like a big big deal and was a huge expensive part of the process and and your paper lays that out about how much like that was their biggest expense and and the internet there are still obviously expenses with running a website and bandwidth and hosting, but like the actual distribution of news has gotten way cheaper, not because of anything that the, the newspapers did, but because of the internet and the fact that then you have, you know, social media and Google and others basically distributing your news for free. Mm-hmm. Again, like it seems like the reverse of the the you know what what uh, what the newspapers are claiming. Like they're yeah. getting tremendous benefit, and so I, you know. I also like to point out that in this regard, they the, there's a lot of barking up the wrong tree. So to the extent that so yes, the internet is replacing distribution that's valuable, and uh, they clearly need it and want it because they could block search and, and indexing so on yeah. if they chose to, but. It's um, to the extent that the internet has undermined newspaper finances, and it has, because what has been lost is the amount of money is larger than what was gained by you know having being able to offload distribution. Right. It's there. It's not because of Google. It's not because of Facebook. It's not because of news aggregators. It's because of the loss of classified ads. Yeah. And classified ads. So you know, in the nineteen seventies, because of you know pressure from television and so on. Uh, there was the way to survive as a newspaper was to consolidate. And so there's this wave of acquisitions by investment, uh, you know, investment bankers and so on. Warren Buffett uh, famously said, if you have a monopoly newspaper, so they consolidate down so they have kind of a geographical semi-monopoly. If you have a monopoly newspaper, your idiot nephew could run it. 
<laughs> and so he backed up his words. He went on a newspaper acquisition yeah. spree um, uh, back in the 1970s. And that's because classified ads, they, there was this captive audience. If you wanted to find you know, where to get your next couch or you had to put legal ads uh, in the paper, that was your option. A lot of states mandated legal ads. And, yes. And, and, uh, and, and, and some still do. Some still do because yeah, it's a big old grip. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, that was a lot of money there. And there was no place else for it to go before the internet, in part because the newspapers would lobby to prevent it from going anywhere else. Yeah. They lobbied to block uh, the yellow pages from being allowed to offer an electronic classified section and, and succeeded. And But Rupert Murdoch, um, he called classified ads rivers of gold. And that's the basis. <laughs> News Corps would not exist in anything like its current state were it not for these rivers of gold, this classified ad revenue. Um, that was flowing the newspapers. But the internet disrupts that. But it's not right. Google who took away right. classified ads. It's Craigslist. Right. And even if you were to go after Craigslist, which there's there's not much money there because most of what Craigslist did undermined this, geogra- this geographical semi-monopoly, lowered the rents they were able to charge on classified ads. But it that, that, that surplus didn't go to the pockets of Craigslist investors. It went to consumers. Classified yeah. that you're, you are able to list your furniture and your stuff at, at, at a fraction of the yeah. price it took and, in the pre-digital era. Yeah. And I think like, you know, uh, I don't I don't know exactly how old you are, but but I am definitely in the, the Gen X generation. And and I do think like some of the people listening in the, the more younger millennial Gen Z uh, demographic might not even realize like what classified ads were mm-hmm. or what newspapers used to look like. And classified ads were just these little text ads. And you would have like, I don't even know, like a hundred on a page and you would have pages and pages and there would be, you know, stuff wanted, stuff for sale, jobs, all the job postings. That was where, yeah. you, you know, I it's looked for before for some, eBay, yes. before Craigslist, that's Bef- what you had to use. Yes. Yeah. It's basically like everything that today you would find on Craigslist was in these little text ads and you would pay like usually per word, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of classified ads. You would just call up, there would be some kid sitting at a desk and he would take down and he would say like, okay, you know, whatever, you can get 10 words for $25 or I don't remember what the, the pricing was like, but something like that. And, you know, I found summer jobs through, through classified ads and, and, you know, and all sorts of stuff. And, but it was a huge part of the newspaper. And I think people don't realize that. And you mentioned this in, in your paper as well. Like there were many, many pages of classified ads. There were, you know, huge sections yeah. of a newspaper. There was just all these tiny text ads, which was like, one, you know, obviously a lot more expensive. Craigslist is free for most things. There's a few few types of ads that they charge for. And, you know, yeah, there was no search, right? You're just yeah, kind of yeah. like – You had to read through it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had to go with a pen and circle the ones that were, were, were yeah. interesting to you. And so, yeah, Craigslist came along. And, and I think Craigslist really just like completely upset that model. And, I mean, I, I remember that there were, you know, there were – you know, p- people in the newspaper business were mad at Craigslist. And there was definitely some talk at some point about how like Craigslist was evil because it was destroying newspapers. But like, you know, anyone who is not like, you know, directly benefiting from from newspaper revenue recognizes exactly what you said, which is like the consumer benefit, the consumer surplus that Hugely. was enabled yeah. by Craigslist was massive. 
and incredible. And it just opened up all of these possibilities. And yes, it upset the business model. But the only reason you had that business model was because you're able to charge these monopoly rents because you were the only place to go. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, it's, and it, you know, you can't shove the sausage back in the casing either. Right. So like, even if they were able to kill off Craigslist and they're able to, you know, end eBay and you ha- everyone had to go back to, you know, classified ads, it wouldn't fix everything. Because they're also under pressure. I mean, their display ads were never as large uh, a share of their revenue as classifieds, but it was right. still meaningful. And the problem is that it's not actually offline news competing against online news, right? It's that advertising revenue flowed from offline news to online everything, right? Right. So it's now your you know your advertising dollars go. You know, they're not just going to – they had to go to newspapers once upon a time because that was the only way you could gather an audience of that size. Right Now, though, you sponsor a Twitch streamer, an Instagram right. influencer, a TikTok creator, <laughs> a thousand different ways, doing stuff that have nothing to do with the news. It's sports, right. entertainment, culture, makeup tutorials, whatever. And so even if they were able to peel back some display ad revenue from particular platforms, we just can't go back to that era. And nor should we want to if you care right. about – a consumer right. benefit. Yeah. There, there was another really interesting part of part of your paper that I think I thought about just, you know, generally, but not as specifically as, as you did, um, you know, and because, you know, I've certainly talked and I, as I, I spoke earlier on the podcast about, and I've written plenty about, you know, just this idea of like how on principle against the open web and the fact that anyone can link to anyone, that that is just, you know, just a, a natural fundamental function of the open web is that you can link without having to pay someone to link to them. It, it you know, it is a super important thing. But something you wrote in the paper that I thought was really interesting was, was this idea of setting up a link tax bargaining code, whatever it is set up is really uh, an attempt to enclose the commons. Right. And, and so thinking of the ability to link to to someone as as part of the commons, something that anyone can do, the, the fact that I can post a, a link to you is is part of the open commons. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about, which I hadn't really thought about, even though I, I totally agree with as soon as you, 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 uh, you know, mention it that way. And you make the analogy of street addresses. And so can you, can you go through that? Cause I thought it was actually yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah. So information, the default nature of information in American jurisprudence is that it should be as free as the air to common use to quote, um, uh, Louis Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice. See, see, Mike, I'm going to turn you into a neo Brandeisian. Not even <laughs> Lena Khan could make you. A Here we go. So, so the default state of information is that it's free as the air to common use there are some purposes where we turn it into property, information, property right. So right. Uh, copyright, patents, trademarks, uh, they're, they're, that's just information that we decide to make property, not because we want to um, you know, benefit a particular class of people per se, but because we believe there's social utility from enclosing that information, turning it into a property. So what a link tax does is it takes a piece of information, which is just the web address, the www, its location, right. and something that used to be free is there to common use. So you could freely, costlessly, frictionlessly link between websites because of it, and it turns it into a quasi-property uh, right. And so that information is now, um, you know, it's not 
it's 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 enclosed, right? There's a new right. class of rentiers who can charge for your, your access to the address. And if you compare, think of that in the you know in a meat space example, the the property address, right? We all get that the physical property that you own, your house, my house, is my property, but the address, the location of it, is not my property. Right, I can't say that if you want to visit. I'm not going to say my address on the podcast, but if you want to vi- <laughs> if you want to uh, put my address in the yellow pages, or if the taxing authorities want to create a list of addresses uh, of the, and put my house on that list, they need to get my permission to do so. Um, we get that that information. There is social utility, public benefit. Right. Uh, it's good for commerce, good for society, good for interaction, so on. That that information remain. Uh, unenclosed. So you own your house, you don't own your home address. Uh, The problem is, is that if you extend, if you enclose that property, or let's say you did so, it would return relatively little of value to the newly endowed property rights holder. I mean, my home is where the value is. If you enclose the address, what do I get from that? I mean, all it does is it means the yellow pages, it gets too kludgy and uh, costly and frictionful for them to create the yellow pages anymore. Uh, we have a concrete example of this from Germany uh, for very understandable, good, good historical reasons. They are very leery. They have a high priority on privacy rights. Right. So in a sense, they don't say this, but in a sense, they turned external images of your property into an ownership right of the of the actual home. Right. Uh, and so you have to get expressed. Not In the US, you can opt out if you don't like the picture of your home on Google on Google Maps, you can. There's usually an opt-out process, but over there, it's a default. You have to opt in right. uh, for those images to be shared. And so, when they enclosed the external image of, of, of picture of your house from the road in Germany, it basically killed off Google Maps. So, if right. you go and look at Google Maps, uh, uh, where you can go, you know, drop your little man and see the Street View in in Germany, uh, there's there's very little, very little coverage yeah. because of that. So, w- what happened was it didn't return much direct benefit. To German, you know, homeowners, or at least any financial benefit, uh, it just destroyed the utility of that information. The same thing would happen if we enclosed addresses uh, for the internet. Yeah, and I, I thought that example was great. And and you know, we had written about the whole situation with Street View in Germany. And again, like you understand the historical nature of yeah. how how Germany got to that position. It's a price to willing to pay. Exactly. But like you also recognize like what you're giving up when you do that. And that is often not taken into account when, when these decisions are being made. And, and there, you know, obviously with, with, with the Germany and the street view example, which I think is, is really telling and really important, you know, Germany didn't do that in order to give homeowners, you know, the ability to profit from, from the pictures of their homes, you know, there, there were other, you know, other rationale behind it, but you know, it, it the similarity is still there in terms of what you're doing. You're sort of creating this quasi property right in order to give more yeah. control over it. To, to my other example, I like from uh, kind of offline examples is yeah. okay. So we recognize that there is a um, there's jurisprudence around it. There's a longstanding right for bookstores and for libraries to be allowed to list book titles and even descriptions yep. to put books in the covers of displayed on their shelves. We yep. get that that's an established right, but it doesn't have to be. You could right. enclose that information and say, in order for a uh, bookstore to display a book, 
and to list it or library to list the title in, in its um, catalog, they have to get the express permission of the publisher and the author and pay them for it. Now, and you could even justify that by saying, look, they are the one who came up with the title of the book. They're the one, it's their property. Right. We want to kind of expand what that definition of property is to return more revenue to authors and publishers. Right. That will be in the public good. And that's not what would happen though. What would mostly right. happen is that the kludginess of a library having to contact every single individual offer before it could list the book in its library holdings or of a bookstore to get express permission and payment, they would just stop stocking as many books. Right. All you'd have is like, I don't know, Harry Potter and uh, you know <laughs> but, some but, very basic lowest common you, denominator stuff. If you create an antitrust exemption and you let the authors all team up and you yeah. give the, the American Publishers Association the right to bargain <laughs> on the bit. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You, you could see where that would get ridiculous. But Nothing I think that, will go wrong. Exactly. I mean, but it is another great example where it's like, you know, putting books on shelves is obviously you are promoting, you are advertising those books and that has a benefit to the authors in the same way that Google News and Facebook linking to news and sending traffic to news articles is a benefit, a free benefit that is given to these news organizations. You know, the thing that that, that I just, I, I keep getting to is like, you know, if the news organizations are failing to, to capitalize on that traffic, that's kind of on them. Like, <laughs> Yeah. You know, do more. <laughs> like we're sending you free traffic here. Like, do something with it. Um, there, are a couple other. There's so many different. There were so many different areas in your paper that I was like, oh, I want to comment on this. I want to talk about this. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take a step back to something that we talked about before. You, you, we, we talked about the example of the News Preservation Act in the '70s and Nixon and how suddenly he got all this support and and potentially you know weaker journalism coverage. Um, you know, and this hasn't been talked about quite as much. It, it, it comes up here and there, but like, you know, if Google and Facebook suddenly become like huge funders of news through a link tax type program, then suddenly you have these issues of like, will these large news organizations cover Google and Meta as critically as before? Like mm. right now they cover them very critically, like in some cases too critically because they're just mad about them. Competition. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but when like they are, you know, by law sort of funding these news organizations and you know that if you harm them and, and take down their ad revenue business, which might be a good thing for all we know, or like, you know, highlight privacy problems or all sorts of things. And those companies have less money to, to spend to then give to new, like, Will we get the same kind of news coverage of these companies when when you have a law, when you have laws like this in place? We kind of have two like separate opposing possible outcomes here. Mm -hmm. Where so depending on how you structure a link tax law, you could if you were uh, this is not how it's currently written, but you could just say that uh, news aggregators that Google at all that they are not allowed to not publish news articles. They can't gain. Now that <laughs> right. would run into all kinds of First Amendment challenges, yes, um, yes, court challenges. But if you were able to do that, then you let's say that were to work. The problem is you then have create a system in which every little extremist, radical, hate-filled publication right. can come to Google and Facebook and say, uh, look, I demand money. We we'd end up propping up a bunch of really problematic speech. Right. Because we would have kind of a content neutral pipeline approach to newspapers. So, but anyways, that's not what's going to happen. That's less likely to happen. The other 
option is that what you get is, you know, instead of a system where right now you go on Google and you search for a topic, I want to know more about like all the time I'll put in Google. That's how I find a lot of news. I'd be like, what's yeah. the latest on Ukraine, Russia? I just put Ukraine, yeah. Russia and it pops up a bunch of articles and I you know go through instead of it looking like that, your news pipeline will look, uh, become more of a walled garden. You'll end right. up with Apple news. The only news you get will be highly curated uh, with folks who negotiated successfully with that platform, whether it's Apple, you know, Google News will be so. So again, you have less of a uh, open access and more of a closed off, walled garden approach to news access. And each one might be very, very different depending on the negotiation, how it went, and thus how that shapes news coverage. Like Apple News, uh, people who happen to consume that conduit of news information could get a very different picture of how the the world is working and current events are unre- uh, unveiling than someone who uses Google news because of the, right. the differences in the negotiation process and who they opted to bargain with and who they opted not to. Um, Cause they're going to have to pick and choose. Right. Um, so yeah, you end up with this, this uh, a situation which they've become auxiliaries dependence right. on, on Google and Apple and, and Facebook in the way that I'm not sure folks are thinking through the right. logical ramifications of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, there are so, so many different interesting ideas in the paper. So one thing, and I brought this up before um, in, in a variety of different contexts, certainly in the link tax context, but, but elsewhere as well, which is that, you know, right now in the U S a lot of local newspapers, and you mentioned this in the paper. So I, I want to talk about this as well is that, um, you know, a lot of local newspapers have been bought up by hedge funds. Um, and, and it's a really interesting process and like Alden global capital is sort of the biggest and most well-known, but there are a few others as well. And, you know, Alden in particular has this reputation of viewing newspapers as something that they can squeeze cash flow out of where, you know, they fire a bunch of journalists. They do as much as they can from sort of one central place. And so, you know, a lot of the news becomes cookie cutter. You have a few sort of like on the ground journalists to give a local flavor to certain things. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, they just, they're just sort of like taking as much cash out of the system as, as they possibly can. And, you know, Alden has been a huge proponent of these link taxes. Um, you know, the... I forget what the guy's name is who runs Alden Capital, um, but he's uh, he wrote like he's incredibly secretive, like nobody ever gets interviews with him or whatever, which is kind of funny when he runs all these newspapers <laughs> or owns all these newspapers. And um, but he like wrote this op ed, basically this like Google and Facebook need to just give me millions of dollars was, was basically the op ed that, that he wrote. Um, and and. You know, this is a point that people have raised. Like, yes, the laws, the, you know, there there have been versions of these laws, and I don't know what the latest state of the the JCPA is, but like, there are versions of these laws that say like a certain amount of it has to go to actual journalism. But like, money is fungible, and you can, you know, right. You say can like transfer yes, that part of money here, right? So that you just, don't have to spend the other part of money, and right, and right. and just and so we're just seeing all these examples of like these. You know, some people call them like vulture, vulture capitalists are coming in and basically just squeezing, squeezing all the money they can out of this, knowing that, you know, eventually the, 
the river of gold is going to end completely <laughs> as it's trickling yeah. down to a well, creek. And it's the same strategy as the Newspaper Preservation Act, which allowed yeah. you know uh, a cartelization combination of back offices. That's what you see happening time and again. The the hedge funds will buy up a local newspaper, multiple local newspapers. They leave the kind of hollow shell of the newspaper, the, right. the brand of it. But most of the actual reporting is done from one now central newsroom right. that's, that siphons out articles to a dozen local newspapers right. all spread around the, the area or the, or the state. And so it's, you know, that's, it's a cost cutting measure and there's nothing wrong with cutting, cutting costs per se. The problem yeah. um, is when they go to try to suckle at the government teat rather than yes. innovating, <laughs> competing in an actual right. open marketplace. Um, and yeah, the news media Alliance, uh, they, they, I mean, they're, they're lobbying on Capitol Hill as we speak, um, trying to get the JCPA started back up here in the fall. Um, it is hard to find a, a major newspaper that's not tied to the News Media Alliance. I was trying to place an yeah. op-ed, and um, <laughs> and and it, they all and it's 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 cross ideological. It's it's the Wall Street yep. Journal, it's the New York Times, it's Politico, it's Vox, it's it's old new uh, media. Yep. They're almost all members of the News Media Alliance, and um, unsup- and the other thing you can actually go to the News Media Alliance. Uh, they have a website. And they've had multiple form letters, uh, form editorials. So if yeah. you're, you know, one of the member um, newspapers, you can just go there, download the form op-ed, change a few of the particulars, and bada bing, bada boom, you're part of the crusade to <laughs> to push the link tax through. And and you know, you could find almost cookie cutter op-eds yeah. all using the similar lingo, all based off of news. It's just so blatant and in the yeah. open. I'm used to people like lobbying, doing their rent seeking at least a little bit, you know, <laughs> under the cover of night or something. A little more in the um, shadows. Yeah. A little more in the <laughs> yeah. shadows. Uh, so yeah, no, so so props to Tech Dirt, non-member of the News Media Alliance, <laughs> not, not hedge member. fund owned. So no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the uh, one other interesting thing, right? So, you know, again, like there, there have been earlier attempts at this, but the, the law that everybody points to is the one in Australia, um, which, you know, the, the news, the media companies and the politicians like to, to claim is a success. Um, and you have some reporting in the paper. There was a study, which uh, I will say, I tried to follow the footnote to that study and it came up uh, oh. empty. So I'm yeah. not sure if that link might be is, a bad is, link. Yeah, has yeah, changed yeah. or whatever, um, but you said that there were there, there there has been some studies. I had written about an early study that said that smaller news organizations in Australia were being left out. Um, I think the the you were citing a study that is much more recent that more or less finds the same thing, perhaps even more drastic than what I had seen originally. Um, yeah, I'll have to go and find because the the organization that produced that study they have a new one out for. T- 2022 so they've updated oh, okay. or for 20 for the i think through quarter one or quarter two of 2023 oh so okay. it's possible that that broke the link but i'll find that and send it uh, your way but basically um so to to understand australia's media market or their newspaper market in particular uh 51.9 percent of all australian news readership uh goes to newspapers that are part of news corp so, you know, Rupert Murdoch's organization, yeah. uh, if you include the second and third conglomerate newspaper conglomerates, uh, the top three take something like 94%, it's over 90% of all news readers go to one of the big three. So right. that's a level of concentration that, that, you know, in the U S to get to that number, you'd have to include 
uh, almost maybe a dozen newspaper conglomerates and combinations to get to a similar number. So it's a highly concentrated newspaper market. Um, In fact, it's top of the list. Someone did a list comparing different concentrations of of, news medias. And Australia came in third. But to China and Egypt, <laughs> who have you know state-run media, so right, hundred percent right. concentrated, right? <laughs> right, right? So China, I mean, so Australia—they include every country in their list. But Australia has a good shot at being the most concentrated news media industry right. in the uh, democratic world, right? Right. right. Um, and so it's uh, it was a, a situation that was just ripe for um, you know if, if you believe as as I do that link taxes basically provide no benefit to small struggling local newspapers, but lots of financial benefit to incumbent, larger, successful newspapers. Well, how much more so would that be true in Australia? And indeed, uh, when what's happened in Australia in the last two years, the actual mandatory uh, bargaining process, there's this whole, if they refuse the bargain, this the right. treasurer, the Australian treasurer can say, okay, we're going to kick off this formal process now. It's right. never been activated. Right. Because the whole point was creating, you know, back room, cigar filled room deals right. between basically the we big won't take you to arbitration if you pay us off. If you pay us off. Right. And once you pay off the big guys, no one actually cares about the small newspapers. Right. So almost all of the money, over two hundred million dollars last I saw, uh, has gone to the big three conglomerates right. who then go on a newspaper acquisition and journalist hiring spree. And right. who's that come from? They come they're buying up smaller papers that aren't shouldering in at the link tax trough. They're hiring journalists away from smaller newspapers right. who didn't get some of that cash. And so we're seeing, and that shows up in the stats, um, that the number of newspapers closing has accelerated and those closures are mm. you know, strongest among the smallest uh, newspapers. Um, so it's exactly the opposite of the ostensible purpose of link taxes, which is to save small right. struggling newspapers. It's just making the problem worse for them. Now, if your interest is feathering the bottom line of, of you know, the, the pockets of Rupert Murdoch or News Corps <laughs> or of, you know, hedge fund owners in the U.S., then link taxes are a great way of doing that. Um, right. I'm not sure that's what they were supposed to be doing in theory. Right. Well, I mean, they might be supposed to be doing, but it, it might not be in the public yes, interest. The, the public <laughs> reason given. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Again, there's so many like just great, great points in here and, and really interesting um elements to us, but, but, uh, I can't talk forever. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the one other thing that I think I wanted to talk about is that in, in your paper, you do talk about kind of like, you know, uh, not solutions, right. But like, just like, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there are, there are legitimate concerns and legitimate questions about news and journalism sure. and how do you fund journalism and how do you, you know, uh, do the kind of journalism that is important, especially in terms of like, you know, holding you know, politicians to account or, or the powerful to account is, is like the, you know, main important role of journalists and, and journalism. And so you do have a section that sort of says like, Hey, there are other ways out there than, than the link text. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think that's the right note to, to put here is not to say, you know, poo poo, who cares about the news? Like the news does provide 
a valuable civic benefit. It's a, it is a right. social. It's not a public good in the, in the economist sense in that it can't be provided by someone else. But it's a public good in the, as much as it's good for civil society. It it, right. it does act as a fourth estate, decreases corruption in local politics. There's all kinds of studies showing that. Yeah. And so it is a pity to lose that. But my, um, you know, we shouldn't enact laws that not only fail to arrest the decline, but make the decline worse. Is right. obviously the first point. But the second point is that um, there are alternatives springing up as we speak that are prof- that are filling um, are filling that role provided by legacy local news outlets. Right. Um, and th- I think this goes underrated by policymakers because they're hard to see. They are non-traditional, right. and because and they are in formats and forms that are you know gerontocratic policymakers. Don't appreciate because they, you know, if you're if you're Nancy Pelosi, you've been opening the morning newspaper for sixty right. years now. You don't. You're not you know, subscribing you're not, to Substacks. You're not subscribing <laughs> to Substacks, right? But <laughs> Substacks are a great example. Newsletters, even TikTok creators, you know, um, there are ways to build your own kind of unbundled boutique combination of news that is right. not just a substitute for the old local newspaper, but is superior to it. In market ways, like if if I wanted to find out what's going on in in China, once upon a time, I would you know maybe uh, I was uh, subscribed to the Greenville News, my local newspaper, and maybe the Wall Street Journal, right, a, a, a national right. paper. That was a pretty common combination. And right. every now and again, there would be an article in the Wall Street Journal about what's happening in China. Yeah, right. I don't know, once every couple of weeks, a couple of days, if, if you're lucky. Well, I can now go and subscribe to um, what's Sinocism. Right. Which which is a dedicated newsletter that multiple times a week gives me higher quality reporting on what's happening in China than anything I would have gotten from my newspaper, yeah. let alone my local newspaper once upon a time. I can combine that with uh, the newsroom that's evolving at the dispatch or at the yep. bulwark. I can combine that with you know sports and culture and entertainment reporting from newsletters and, and TikTok creators. Um, some of the best resources for figuring out what's going on in U- Ukraine and Russia have been TikTok creators who do right. – basically are – you know they're people from the defense industry or people from – you know they have an interest in the region who just update you daily on what's going on in the war. Um, so you're getting more and better quality news. Um, it's just not coming through a legacy traditional news outlet. Um, and that's what's seen. The current system sees the legacy outlets – they don't right. see or even count this new stuff as news. Yeah. This is going to become increasingly important because for Gen Z, um, like something like a third of Gen Z say that TikTok is a major source of news for yep. them. Um, and that number just keeps growing. So people are looking to the uh, Google search, uh, a very large, I think maybe 20 uh, uh, quarter of uh, Gen Z almost exclusively use the search functions of TikTok and Instagram rather than Google's search engine if they want to find like a restaurant recommendation and so on. So that's the future. It's just that, you know, it's a future. The future is unequally distributed according to age. Um, And so, yeah, we're looking at the the, the future of local news qua the news is bright. Now, the future of local legacy news outlets might not be quite so bright. So there's some hope there. Now, smart, smart news outlets will will start pivoting. I mean, there's yeah. ways in which you could redesign what it means to be a news outlet to take advantage of new mass media forms. Um, obviously, the Dispatch is a great example of, of what they, they've done over there, kind of replicating something like the traditional newsroom, but in a newsletter format. 
Um, there needs to be more of that kind of experimentation. Uh, so, and, and it's also worth noting that none of these folks, newsletters, TikTok creators, you name it, none of them would benefit from the JCPA. Right. They're completely left out. So all the JCP does is prop up shambling zombie legacy outlets um, while ignoring um, what's coming in to replace to fill that void on the local level. Yeah. And it's interesting. And, you know, it's really easy. And, you know, we've seen this you know, throughout TechDirt's history, whenever we report about these kinds of things. And I still remember like people dismissing the the whole like citizen journalism, like, oh, come on, you know, concept. But like these things do happen and they they are interesting and they're different and there are certainly reasons to be concerned about some of them. And then sure. you have questions about, you know, who's legitimate, who is trustworthy, but you know, society, we seem to have a way, not always certainly, but we seem to have a way of starting to figure those things out and working those things out. And, and we see that if there is real demand for local news, which there is like people keep trying, like we keep seeing experiments. We keep hearing, you know, one thing you didn't mention is like podcasts. Like I've been getting more and more mm -hmm, news mm -hmm. from podcasts and finding like, there are some really interesting, like some local podcasts that just talk about news and, and, uh, you know, around where I live. And it's actually really, really interesting and, and useful. And so we're seeing these new models develop. And again, these laws have, you know, they ignore them and sort of deliberately exclude these new models from from actually developing and potentially you know harming them as you say if if it's handing money over to to the the legacy papers to to sort of hire away or consolidate these smaller players. I will say that if you know some of your listeners are you know moving kind of the tech and news sector um, sectors that you. I feel like there is still a service that doesn't yet exist. That's the next logical evolution of this, what I call new news media. Mm -hmm. um, right now we've seen the great, we're seeing the great unbundling of news, which right. already came for things like television, right? We all got that cable got right. bundled. Now we have streaming services. Now there's a move towards rebundling and that's we're you know, in, in process. Yeah. The same thing is happening at a bit of a remove to news. We unbundle the news and now you can go and pick experts that once upon a time you could only get access to as part of a bundle. But there is consumer convenience and utility from a bundle. Right. And so it is logical for a rebundling to happen. But there is right now no really convenient way to do so. Right. Yeah. Like th there should be a way, the first person who cracks this nut, not, you know, it's not <laughs> me, me, which allows you to assemble your favorite newsletters your favorite podcasts, your favorite TikTok creators, all the information goes into one place, one yeah. document that comes to you. Maybe it uses, uh, you know, um, you know, machine learning algorithms and AI to assemble it into a boutique newspaper for you each day based on your prior, what you looked at, what you engaged with. It, it ranks the articles coming from all these sources and it serves it up to you in your email inbox. One thing, like the morning newspaper yeah. delivered to you, but it is unique to you. Yeah. Um, if someone can crack that, I think that's the. I, I mean, think that's where this all yeah. is going I mean, at some point. There, there have certainly been attempts to do that, right? And, and like you could argue that like RSS readers and Google News in particular was really an attempt to do that. And of course, Google killed it and, and people regret that to this day. And there have been other attempts to do similar things. And there was like, you know, uh, there was this company called Nuzzle that that mm. was really great that Twitter purchased and then killed. Uh, <laughs> we're seeing a pattern here where they would look at your social media feeds 
and mm. figure out like what news links were getting the most interest and create a sort of daily paper. There are a few other similar ones that are trying to do that. Uh, there's one called Mermel. And, and so there are people who are trying these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, they haven't quite caught on yet. And then you have other issues where it's like, you know, I think Substack would argue that they're trying to do the same thing. They've sort of built an RSS reader um, so that you can like get a daily newspaper that has all of the Substacks that you subscribe to, but it also, you can pull in other RSS publications into Substack's own reader. Um, so there are attempts at this. I don't think it's fully there. They don't integrate in like other aspects of social media yet or not well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are ways to do that there. Are, and I've seen other projects. I mean, I remember this goes back like 2001 or 2002. I had a friend who was building this product, which, which came out of a PhD uh, thesis, which was, he just referred to, he called it the daily me. And it was like, again, this is like yeah, 20 yeah, yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, like he, he had let me use his, his technology in the early days of Tekra. That was, that was before Google news existed before, you know, the early, some of these were pre RSS where like just to follow news, I was using his daily me uh, software program, um, which was, you know, very rudimentary, but like, it's been a goal and people yeah. have attempted yeah. it, but nothing quite has, has caught on. And, and my fear is like, especially with like looking at like the Substack one, like I kind of fear that that like the attempts are to make it proprietary in its own way, like mm-hmm. to lock mm-hmm. it in as opposed to the more open systems, but we'll see. And we're getting way off topic from, from the, <laughs> the link taxing, but I, I think, I think that's, it's an interesting area to think about and an interesting one to explore, but I think we're going to wrap up this, this particular discussion here. So, um, Obviously, there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff. You know, I only, I, I think I went a little deeper than scratching the surface of your paper, but like, there's a lot of. It was a really great paper. It, it generated a lot of thoughts. Obviously, we're following all of these link text things very closely, and we'll have lots more stuff on on Tector. But uh, Paul, thanks so much for writing this paper, which was great and and uh, it was really, really interesting. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast as well. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, Mike. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we will be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.